Those slippery legislators in the state house are keeping us busy this week. It's amazing how many new things they've slipped into the legislation without discussion that we're trying to keep up with. We're going to be talking about some of that today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Layla Tassi. Happy Friday, your favorite day of the week. <laughs> Happy Friday. Friday. <laughs> we have not, we've had busy Thursdays, but holy moly, yesterday was busy. Let's get straight to it. Did the Ohio House really just slip an anti-vax law into an appropriation bill without much discussion? And isn't this one of the provisions that made Ohio a laughingstock and a bill that has failed to go anywhere? Jane Coon, we did not see this one coming. Not at all, because uh, just on Tuesday, the head of the Ohio Health, Health Committee said this bill, you know, did not have the juice to to move out of a committee, and they were going to take their time and listen to more people and amend it and so on and so forth. And then, lo and behold, on on Thursday afternoon during the House session, they had this uh, coronavirus relief bill. It was, it was. Um, you know, to, to allocate uh, $422 million in federal funds uh, from the American Rescue Plan. And they stuck in this language. Uh, there, there's a couple things. The language bars private and public entities from requiring someone to get a vaccine that hasn't gotten full approval from the U.S. Uh, FDA. So that one doesn't seem like, you know, totally no, outrageous. I mean, the military but, doesn't do that either. Once it's fully approved, it's a different animal. But in, when it's emergency approval, that, that that's not the egregious one. The next right. one is the, the next one. It bars the uh, businesses from requiring people to engage in or refrain from activities based on whether or not they are vaccinated. So in other words, that could prevent, like, say, nursing homes and other employers from preventing unvaccinated people from working near people who are medically at risk. So there you have it. That's, you know, and they well, passed it. But, but they passed the House. It still has to go to the Senate. Senate. Sign it. But right. the the idea, I mean, the, the, the federal government has said employers have the right to require people to be vaccinated. Ohio is saying, no, you don't have the right. You can't. You couldn't tell somebody you're not vaccinated. You can't come to work. You don't have a job. You couldn't tell somebody in a hospital setting you're not vaccinated. You can't work with these immunocompromised people who, if you get near, are likely to get whatever you have. That's yeah. what they're passing. Yeah. So it's and, like a stripped down version of that that bill that we've talked about that that medical experts think is so dangerous that was called House Bill 248. And that's the one. Of course, we have to remind people this put us into the national spotlight not in a good way, with all these false theories that they allowed to be brought before the health committee about vaccines magnetizing you and interacting with cell towers. So this is the reason we have single subject legislation rules, though, because when that was a separate bill, they couldn't get it passed because it was loony. But when they shove it into some appropriations bill without comment, it slips through. It's it, This is why the Constitution says what it says, and they keep violating it. This is shocking. They are making Ohio a more dangerous place. They're making it a more dangerous place for children. It, it just, it's pretty mind-boggling what they're, um, 
what they're pulling. I, I here. predict they will justify this as as uh, passing muster with the single subject rule because these are coronavirus relief funds, and you know we're you know we're talking about coronavirus vaccines. So you know there you have it completely. Okay, you know. so it's they can like justify the, the single subject. Anti they, part of that. They can't justify the science because it's anti science, but they could say they're within the rules. What's going on down there is crazy. We'll have more we talk about later in the podcast. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. If you see someone you think is driving while drunk, is that enough probable cause for a police officer to pull the driver over? Jane Cahoon, I'm really surprised. I was talking to you earlier that there's any was any question about this. There no longer is. What's the ruling? Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. So the Supreme Court is unanimous in in seeing the, it that way, that that's enough. The, on Thursday, they ruled that a state trooper was justified in stopping a Cincinnati woman who, it turns out, was driving drunk after a passerby yelled to the trooper, hey, stop that vehicle. That lady is drunk. So that happened in 2017. The trooper was in a Speedway gas station parking lot investigating a, a diff, another a, an accident. And, and a customer came out of the store and called out to him and, and directed his attention to this woman named Sherry Tidwell, who was very slowly backing her Hummer out of a parking space. And so the trooper approached her, prevented her from leaving and and asked her to roll down the window. And he saw that her eyes were bloodshot, her speech was slurred and, yeah, and the inside of her vehicle. <laughs> yeah, smelled of alcohol. She blew like a 0.213, more than two and a half times the legal limit. And <clears throat> meanwhile, this customer who had yelled, hey, that lady's drunk, uh, left the scene without identifying himself. So the question before the court was, was this customer's shout enough to justify the trooper stopping the driver. And two lower courts said, no, it was not enough because the tip was anonymous and there was no way to test it. And there were no other signs that the driver was doing anything wrong at that point. But on Thursday, the Supreme Court said, yes, it was justifiable to stop her. This was a unanimous decision. Justice Michael Donnelly wrote the ruling and he said it was reasonable under the totality of the circumstances for him to approach the vehicle in this public area and briefly detain its driver in order to make a most basic inquiry as to whether an immediate danger to public safety existed. So he said the trooper made a brief, minimally, minimally, excuse me, intrusive response that enables a law enforcement officer with at least reasonable suspicion that a crime um, is being or is about to be committed to obtain more information that can right. quickly, so you know, yeah i mean so th th this kind of gets to the basics of neighborhood watch and how many signs do you pass on the highway that says if you see somebody driving drunk call 911 th th that's what police kind of count on it it was just counterintuitive to me that that would not be enough to just do the check somebody saying hey that lady's driving drunk, which is really dangerous. And she was so blotto, it would have been dangerous. And then the, the court, two lower courts ruled, nope, nope, that's not enough. You you got to let her go free. It seems like this was another common sense decision by the Supreme Court. Yes? Well, well can I, I jump I in? Said, sure. Tassi. So it sounded, though, from the judge's remarks that that only under these very specific circumstances that it was brief and minimally intrusive can law enforcement act on a tip from a passerby? I mean, but if it, if it had required the trooper to get in his car and follow her and pull her over, would that be going too far under these circumstances? I mean, I don't get it. I mean, 
That no, seems I think a little wishy-washy. No, I, I think when he says the intrusiveness, the, the intrusiveness is just stopping her to talk to her. That's that's the intrusion. If he would have had to drive after her, my bet is it would have been the same. Look, this is the basic, this is what we ask people to do. If you see something, say something. And and people are a pretty good judge of of when cars are out of control. So I that I just I was when Jane told me about this, I, I just was stunned that there was a question. It seemed like it's pretty automatic. I mean, if you saw somebody driving down your street, Layla weaving all over the place, endangering your family, and there was a cop yeah, nearby, right. you would expect, hey, officer, go get them, and they would. Right, and the fact right. that this became a serious question throws me I, yeah you know I you mean, could use spite and malice you're right they're always afraid that, that somebody will try and get a neighbor in trouble by just saying it but the, what's the worst that could have happened you know it would have been it, they, they, he, she wouldn't have been drunk and he would have let her go right right i mean the state has a even a hotline i think it's 1-800-GRAB-DUI <laughs> to call in <laughs> these things so they encourage people to report drunken driving it is kind of shocking that this is even controversial and rose the level of this kind of legal challenge because yeah, see something, say something. That's, that's the, good, that's how we yeah. roll. <laughs> more credit to Maureen O'Connor Supreme court. We're going to miss her. It's this week in the CLE. How much weight does the CDC's extension of its eviction moratorium for a month have? Leila Tassi, I thought courts had thrown out this moratorium saying the CDC doesn't have the power to do it. Right. So, so, to take it back a step, the point of the moratorium is to keep people in their homes during the pandemic and out of congregate shelters or situations where they're forced to double up with friends or family living in crowded environments where COVID could spread. The moratorium was supposed to expire. Well, it was supposed to expire a while ago. It's been extended multiple times, uh, most recently to June 30th and now to July 31st. It's important to note also that tenants can still be evicted for reasons other than non-payment of rent, and this moratorium does not absolve a tenant from having to pay rent. That's a you know a common misconception about this moratorium. The back rent still accumulates and still comes due. So the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, made the extension to give renters a chance to access rental assistance. Congress set aside $46 billion nationwide for rental assistance, and the Coalition of Housing and Homelessness in Ohio estimates that the state set aside nearly $1.5 billion for rental assistance since the pandemic began. But many programs have had hiccups in their system of distributing the money. CHN Housing Partners in Eden, in Eden, which are handling the rental assistance program locally in Cuyahoga County, have noted their own backlog of requests that they continue to work through. So that was really the reason for extending this to the end of July. But as you said, this has been the subject of many legal challenges, including here in Ohio. A federal judge in D.C. ruled that uh, this, the CDC did not have the authority to enact the moratorium in the first place. However, that judge later put her ruling on hold, which meant that the moratorium stayed in effect, and an appeals court agreed the moratorium should not end until it reviews the judge's decision. But then the landlord's group that sued then asked the Supreme Court to halt the moratorium while the appeal proceeds. So the Supreme Court is going to weigh in on that. So to prevent a flood of evictions here, Cleveland Housing Court Judge W. Monet Scott has asked city council to consider enacting a local eviction moratorium, but the city and council have said that they don't have the authority to do that. So honestly, we don't really know how this is going to go. Hopefully, you know, it will hold long enough for people to get the rental assistance they need to remain in their homes. But 
uh, yeah, there's just so many layers to the legal challenges here and everyone is waiting for some kind of decision. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, July 31st is, is the next deadline here. Okay. That's as clear as mud. I, I just, I don't know I, if I were, if I were a tenant, I wouldn't know what to make of this ruling. You know, I'd be scared because the, the, the way this has gone about at least, I mean, at least the CDC is trying to protect them, but there are a lot of people trying to right. not. So I think for now that the, 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 I, the, the moratorium holds until one of these courts decide, makes some kind of decision. So in the meantime, so everyone apply for your rental assistance, fill in the paper, fill out the paperwork to, to uh, uh, take advantage of the moratorium. If you need it, that's, that's what everyone should do if they're under, you know, facing these circumstances. Okay. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Do politics make strange bedfellows? And the framework for that question is this one. Is Ohio Senate candidate Bernie Moreno's daughter getting married to the guy who is trying to defeat Anthony Gonzalez in the Republican primary for Congress next year? Laura Johnston, this one's just a great gossipy news item. It is. It is. So yes, Emily Moreno is engaged to marry Max Miller and Moreno is 27. She is the second eldest of children from uh, Bernie Moreno, the auto uh, magnate who is running for Senate. And then Max Miller, she met him in 2015 when they were working for Senator Marco Rubio's campaign. And then they both worked for Donald Trump at a time. But yeah, they actually both grew up in Cleveland. Uh, he and Shaker Heights, I believe, and she and Westlake, but they didn't didn't meet until these campaigns. And now they are engaged to be married. And she's got a Twitter feed full of events that she's appeared at either for Miller or uh, her dad. And apparently she's never representing them both at the same time, but she has definitely stumped for both. What, what I find fascinating about this is a week ago, two weeks ago, after Donald Trump announced he was coming to Northeast Ohio this weekend, Seth Richardson and I were debating who made that happen. You know, I just I didn't think Jane Timken could make it happen. I didn't think Josh Mandel could make it happen. And I was suggesting that it was Bernie Moreno, that he's got Kellyanne Conway working with him. And and he's the kind of operator that could make it happen. And when this day comes, he'd be up on the stage with Trump. And Seth was making the case that, no, he's coming to torpedo Gonzalez. He's really mad Gonzalez voted to impeach him. And it's looking more and more like we're both right. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's, you know, Bernie's got the, the daughter who's marrying Gonzalez's uh, opponent. We'll have to see what happens when Trump is here. But I, I, I would not be surprised at all if Bernie I, Moreno doesn't have an outsized presence. I'm guessing they're all going to be there on Saturday. Yeah, but but you know the way it works, right? They're all going to be begging for attention, but who gets patted on the head? I'm putting my money on Bernie Moreno. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. If you're an Ohio lawmaker who is passing a law to legalize fireworks in June, why can't you make it so people can use them for Independence Day this year? Jane Cahoon, this just seems <laughs> stupid, right? When Either wait and pass the law after July 4th, or make it apply sooner. What's the deal? We're finally going to yeah. have legalized fireworks in Ohio. <laughs> Part of it is is that they're just itching to leave for summer recess. So that's part of the reason why they're cramming all this stuff into different bills and passing all sorts of legislation. It's kind of akin to the the lame duck. Uh, but anyway, and the way this bill was written, it it just doesn't take effect like for a whole 
year, I think, after even after the the governor would sign it. Um, but it it's uh, it 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 would allow consumer grade fireworks to be owned and set off on legal holidays. And um, you know, it's uh, so as you said, it won't affect this Fourth of July, but. As we know, in Ohio, you're you're allowed to buy fireworks, but you have to say you're taking them out of the state within 48 hours. And this rule has just been almost universally flouted. It's like the liar's law, as they call it. But but um, starting about, I guess, a year uh, after DeWine signs this bill, Ohioans would be allowed to set off fireworks uh, on New Year's Day. Lunar New Year, Cinco de Mayo, Memorial Day, Juneteenth, July 3rd, 4th, and 5th, and the Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays preceding and following Labor Day weekend, Diwali, and New Year's Eve, and any other legal holiday. So, But but the thing I don't get is you can do it before and after Labor Day, but not before and after Memorial Day. How did they decide that? You can't do it before and after Juneteenth, just on the day. But come Labor Day, it's a week-long thing. When did Labor Day become a week-long fireworks thing? Are you really asking me to get in the heads of these lawmakers? They yeah. drive me crazy as it is. Who knows what they're thinking? Well, and the fireworks have been going on already. If on all the social media and neighborhood channels, you see people complaining because their dogs are all nervous. Yeah. That is and the there downside. Is, there this. is concern about this because of the fireworks injuries that that occur every year, you know, with stupid people just, you know. Well, and people with PTSD get all upset about it, and dogs and, and cats, dogs and, yeah, suffer. yeah. There's I mean, a lot of yeah. It's it's you know, with the gun violence been going on in Cleveland neighborhoods this year, I think every time a fireworks goes off, the people are going to wonder if it's a shooting. So there is, there are. Yeah, some I don't think it's it. going to change. I mean, if they think like restricting it to these holidays is going to do anything, people are just going to be the same jerks they always were. And and any city can still <laughs> prohibit it, right? I mean, if yeah, local governments, want it, would, right. yeah, local governments would have the power to ban fireworks within their jurisdictions or further restrict these these times. Is Mike Dewine going to be the July Fourth Scrooge and veto it? Or yeah, he... you know, I'm not. I'm not totally certain uh, what he's what he's going to do here. All right, we'll have to see. We'll soon know. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many arts and cultural events in Greater Cleveland were canceled last year because of COVID? And how much did that cost the arts groups? Leila Tassi, we've talked multiple times on this podcast about how hard hit the performing arts in particular were by COVID. But we now have it quantified. And wow, these are some big numbers. They really are. This comes from the annual report for Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. That's the public agency created back in 2006 to distribute county cigarette tax money to the arts. And according to them, the pandemic led to the cancellation of 6,500 events in Cuyahoga County, and that amounted to $119 million in lost revenue for arts and cultural nonprofits. As a result of that, more than 3,100 contractors and employees of these agencies were laid off, furloughed, or had their hours reduced or contracts canceled, and that resulted in more than $15.7 million of lost compensation. The report notes that CAC responded to the crisis by accelerating $5 million in grant payments and distributing CARES Act funds that were allocated from Cuyahoga County. That money helped the recipients pivot to really create more than 4,300 new online events and activities and to modify 
more than 3,200 existing in-person programs so that they could go virtual. One wonderful example of this adaptation was the Baldwin-Wallace Community Arts School, which usually holds a summer arts education camp on campus. But instead, they created a virtual program called CAS Unboxed, which included mailing um, needed supplies directly to the students who would have participated in the camps. I just thought that's a great way to adapt to the circumstances. So despite the extreme hardship experienced by those in the arts community this past year, there were some really beautiful silver linings, it seems. They found a way to inspire and serve the community after all. What this story told me is that we really need to look at the barrage of annual reports we get this year because we get hit with these all the time. People send in their annual reports, yada, yada, yada. That's a good point. This one was one you read and it's like, oh man, it's loaded with information about the impact of the coronavirus. And I suspect we're going to see that over and over. So I'm glad we were alert and actually opened this one up and read it. And we'll have to do that with the rest. It's uh it's been a tough year. I, we got a, a message or a email from somebody that makes a living playing the flute. And they said they're just now getting back, but they're being paid less. So even as they return, there's still not a lot of money. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Ellen Hildebrand, who normally writes about Nantucket, set a big part of her most recent book in Parma? Laura Johnston, I would never ask about this on the podcast, but you published a story Thursday that is just great. It's an outsider talking about what makes Northeast Ohio special. It's something that I think everybody who lives here would enjoy reading. So talk a little bit about how she chose it and how she reported it. Yeah, I think this was such a cool story. So I'm a huge Ellen Hildebrand fan. I read her books. She comes out with a new book generally every summer that's set on Nantucket. She's written 27 books. So I cracked it open and I'm getting, you know, a little bit into it. I'm like, wait, this is in Parma. Why is it in Parma? And so um, there's all sorts of details from, you know, St. John Bosco Church to Blossom Music Center to The Plain Dealer is mentioned, I believe, twice in the book. So I contacted her publicist. I wanted to see if I could get an interview, and she graciously did. And yeah, the whole idea, she was here in 2018 for an event at the Cuyahoga County Public Library where she met a whole bunch of her fans, signed a bunch of books. She said it was a great experience. And she went to dinner at the Parma Tavern where she saw on the menu there were cabbage and noodles. And she was like, is that a local delicacy? And so it stuck with her when she wanted to give her protagonist in her newest book, Golden Girl, a Midwestern upbringing. She thought about Parma. She thought Cleveland's pretty close to her, her actual hometown of Philadelphia. And she wanted that same feeling, that kind of like Springsteen song feeling of driving around with the radio on, nowhere to go, kind of suburban 80s you know, experience. And so she went back to Parma, but she hadn't actually visited Parma again. And so she found a Facebook uh, page called Parma Memories of Growing Up in Parma, Ohio, or something like that. And she just asked the people on that page and she got 80 some comments. She got photos, she got details down to like Antonio's Pizza and Byers Field. She said she had so much detail, she couldn't fit it all in. Yeah, it's a, it, you did a really nice job conveying her excitement for the uh, the region. I'm glad that she was willing to talk to you. Uh, you know, she'll probably sell some more books with the enthusiasm <laughs> you had in the story. Good stuff. Check out Laura's story on Cleveland.com. It's worth your time. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Why is the Ohio Elections Commission defying Attorney General Dave Yost in his bid to stop Larry Householder from using his campaign account to pay legal bills in a big racketeering case? Jane Coon, this one doesn't make any sense to me. They, they, keep, they keep not doing it. And so the abuse is remaining with no, with no decisions. Why? Once again, you're asking me to get in the minds of public <laughs> officials I do not understand, Chris. This uh, commission, I mean, they are just, I have to say this, they, they just hardly, they, they don't take action on anything. I mean, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll get pushback on that. They do do something. But it seems like, you know, they're just always delaying. So, in fact, they voted Thursday to indefinitely delay acting on these election complaints against householder. Uh, he, Dave Yost, the attorney general, filed a complaint uh, accusing him of using or spending this $920,000 from his campaign account to hire attorneys uh, who are conducting his criminal defense in this huge corruption case. And, um, you know, the, the commission basically said it needs to wait for the results of the criminal case before it proceeds with this. They can't really conduct an investigation of this. And um, there's a separate complaint against him, too, that Frank LaRose, the secretary of state, filed. But, uh, you know, a representative from um, Yo's office w approached the commission and said, come on, you know, like, it's all in the public records here in his campaign finance reports. Why do you need, you know, an investigation? Well, but, that, but, but that's true. It, I mean, the, the money is yeah. going to his legal defense team in his criminal case. There's no investigation. He's disclosed it all. They can act on this right now. I, what, what will the end of the criminal case mean? He's still is spending campaign money. He'll just spend more on legal defense. That's not why people donated to him. Well, apparently there was some sort of precedent in 1996, and it, it cited something from a case even dating back to the 80s in which charges were dismissed against a public official before the case went to trial. And, and this decision said there could be case-by-case -case examples where it is allowed to use your campaign funds for that. And and one of Householder's lawyers said pretty much that, that, that uh, you know, that he should be allowed to do this because, you know, to defend himself because these matters <laughs> these the involve, lawyers, yeah. They, these are the they, lawyers getting the money. So they don't have right. a vested interest in yes, making the right. game. Well, he said, he noted that they involve allegations surrounding his public office. So that's, I mean, I'm just telling you what the arguments are. Okay. But, uh, so we have uh, an indefinite delay here. That's the that's the bottom line. Well, it's an indefinite delay because they don't want us to keep talking about it. So if they don't have to vote on it again, we won't have another news story. So it just sits <laughs> unless we bring it up on our own, like we did with the House's refusal to oust Larry Householder. And they ultimately did. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does the Ohio legislature want to stop local governments from prohibiting natural gas appliances as conservation measures? Lori Johnson, this is a trend that's taken place in cities outside of Ohio, that the idea that the natural gas is a pollutant. And so some cities like in Arizona and California have said new houses can't have those hookups. What, what, why, is, why are Ohio legislators fighting this? I, I'm not really sure. They say they want to get out ahead of the issue and that they want to make sure that people have a reliable source of heat in the winter, which, you know, 
who's going to argue with that? But um, the opponents of this bill, including environmental and local government groups, say the measure is going to violate home rule authority granted to local governments. And how many times have we watched this play out where a city wants to do something and the government says, you know, the state legislature says, nope, you can't do this. And a lot of times it happens to be the urban cities passing laws that the rural legislators say, no way, you can't do this. So right now it's passed a final Senate vote 24 to 7. It heads to Governor Mike DeWine's desk. I don't, I mean, I, again, I'm like Jane Cahoon. I don't know what Mike DeWine is going to do, but I don't, I, I mean, this doesn't sound like something he would automatically veto. There are a lot of chefs and cooks who disagree with this, that they find mm-hmm. that cooking over gas is far preferable to using electric ranges or those magnetic things that shake up all the atoms. So, so there is a thought that in in the kitchens of restaurants this has become a thing in states that have done this that the restaurants are saying hey you're you're making it impossible for us to do what we do that that didn't seem to be part of this discussion they pegged it all to the republicans in the legislature want to make sure poor people have low cost yeah. eat. very sure believable given really what they've been doing in the budget for the past two weeks Right, right. No, and, and we we might hear a little bit more. I mean, I feel like, you know, Thursday afternoon, the, the stuff was just coming out of the state house like, you know, rapid fire. And I, I don't remember hearing about this as an issue before. It's all of a sudden like it's passed. It's going to DeWine's desk. And it's like, wait, wait, we didn't even have time to talk about this yet. Yeah, neither did they. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening in there. Listening to this week in the CLE. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Monday to start another week of news, which if it's anything like this one, will have a lot for us to talk about. 